The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. We've had a lot of people on the show who started a career in law and then left it to do something they really loved. And if you've been listening for a while, it might start to seem like being a lawyer is, well, tedious. So that's why I asked my friend Lindsay Harrison to come on the show. See, Lindsay's a lawyer who loves her job. She's a partner at a firm called Jenner & Block, and she does all kinds of work, including a lot of pro bono work. She often sues the federal government. Like, for example, Lindsay challenged the president's attempt to end the DACA program, which shields some undocumented youth from getting deported. And she won. If you've ever thought about a career in law, or if you're just wondering what exactly lawyers do, well, this episode's for you. But even if you haven't, if you're just wondering what it means to have a 24-7 hardcore career that you really love, you'll get a lot out of listening to Lindsay. I asked Lindsay to start by giving us an audio tour of a place that few of us will ever get to enter, the Supreme Court. Lindsay spent a bunch of time there. In fact, she argued her very first case as a lawyer there. We get to hear what it's like to be in that room, to make a case in that room, and why you have a voice there, even if you've never set foot in the building. Here's Lindsay. So it's a really small room, incredibly small, and you are at the podium about maybe four or five feet away from the justices. They're right in front of you, so close that you have to actually turn your head to see the justices sitting on your far left or far right because they're so close that you can't keep them all in your vision at once. And there's a timer and you have, you know, 30 minutes total. And uh, the way it works is they just ask you questions. You have maybe uh, a little bit of time at the beginning to start, and then that you get interrupted. And question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. You constantly are getting interrupted. And your goal is to try to answer the question in a way that satisfies the justice, but that makes one of your affirmative arguments. And so you want to try to control the argument while all the justices are also trying to control the argument and persuade each other through their questions. So I've I've read about this before, Lindsay. You're seated in a way that you actually can't visually see every justice, and yet you need to know exactly where they are. And at any point, you need to be able to identify the question coming at you, even if you can't see the asker. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So you do a lot of preparation, listening to recordings of arguments, and you kind of learn to identify the voices based on on intonation and how the you know accents. You know, you have. You have RBG with this very quiet voice with a strong Brooklyn accent. They each have their own kind of character to them. And so that first case was 11 years ago. Um, when you look back at your technique then, how has it evolved? What have you learned? I'm much slower now, actually. I think I was trying to get as much out as possible, as quick as possible, partly from nerves and partly just out of youthful exuberance. Um, so I try to take my time a little little more now and uh, try to listen to questions judges ask and, and ask myself, what are they really trying to get at? Um, I didn't really give myself the space to do that, I think, in that first argument. How much of 
success in that venue is learning to map the relationships between the justices themselves. Oh, that's an enormous, enormous part of it. Right now, winning in the Supreme Court is in large part persuading the chief justice. If, if it's a case where you think it's going to be close, he is the swing vote. And so uh, this term, uh, I litigated the DACA case in the Supreme Court. And from the start, our strategy was how do we convince the chief justice that the Trump administration is attempting to rescind the DACA program in a way that's not lawful. And so really from the moment we prepared our complaint and filed it in district court, that was the thought on our mind. And how do we convince, how do we come up with arguments that will help Justice Kagan convince the chief justice that we're right? So a lot of strategy is thinking about who's going to be talking to who and who's going to be persuading who and giving them the tools to make that effective. Mm-hmm. You keep saying we, when I imagine you arguing before the Supreme Court, it's, it's somewhat of a solitary experience. But in truth, I imagine there's a, a complete team of people involved in making that argument. How does that work? Yeah. So the DACA case is one where I didn't actually argue it in the Supreme Court, but I was a leader of a whole team of lawyers, some of whom were from law firms, some of whom were from immigration advocacy organizations, some of whom were from states, and all of whom had their own perspective on on how to fight the case and how to win the case. And there's a lot of debating and a lot of collaboration, a lot of riffing on ideas. And ultimately, it's a team-driven success when you win in the Supreme Court. It's never really the one person arguing who wins it. It's, in fact, often the the youngest, most inexperienced people on the team who will come up with arguments and ideas that no one else has thought of and that have time to germinate and that make their way into the final opinion. What are the mechanics of collaboration on a team such as that? How do you figure out, for example, how to support those younger voices in coming into the conversation? You have to create a space where those voices are valued. And sometimes that's asking those people to speak first in a room so that you make space for it. And uh, sometimes that's asking those people to prepare a first draft of a, of a brief or a document so that their voice gets in there from the very start and then you can work from there. Um, but but that to me is why really I'm still happy in this job is that is that if you can find yourself a place that's not hierarchical and that values those younger voices, those less experienced voices that are going to be more creative because they're just not entrenched, um, it, I think, leads to a better product and a more fulfilling experience for everybody. The way Lindsay explains it, the Supreme Court offers a chance for everyone to weigh in on the cases that it takes. You don't need an invitation or to be named in the suit. You just need to believe that your point of view matters. I mean, one thing people may not realize about the Supreme Court is that almost anyone can file a brief in a case. So you have the parties to the dispute, you know, in in the DACA litigation, you have um, universities and companies and individuals on one side and you have the Trump administration on the other. But there were dozens of other people who came in to participate as what we call amici or friends of the court and who were able to share their perspective on why this was such an important issue. And it actually moved the needle in the case. One of the main moments at argument was 
um, Justice Breyer saying there are all these people who say this is going to affect the economy and this is going to affect public health. You know, DACA recipients are are public health workers or doctors, and they would be pulled out from the system if uh, if we rescinded the program, they lost their authorization to work. And so all these other briefs that came into the case with people saying why they thought it was so important ended up being part of the argument and actually part of the opinion. Because one of the reasons that the, the court said it was unlawful for the administration to rescind the program is that they didn't consider all these other consequences before they did it. And so I feel like it's a much more democratic institution than people may understand because anyone can participate if they have a perspective that would be useful for the court to hear. So let's go back a beat. When did you figure out that you wanted to pursue law? Probably high school. I was a debater in high school, and that was my happy place. And I loved arguing, and I liked getting trophies for arguing, and uh, it just seemed natural to continue on. I was a debater in college, and then I just went straight through to law school. Did you ever have a moment where you stopped and considered the very many things you could do and, and made the proactive choice? law school above something else? Or were you always pretty clear? There was one moment in college where I thought to myself, maybe I should go be a playwright. Um, my senior year of college actually was the last year I, I didn't debate. And I tried a whole bunch of other stuff, um, including writing and producing a play on campus. And I loved it. And I felt like um, that in combination with wa watching what Ellen DeGeneres coming out did for the world, which law had not done at that point, which was to really move the needle on what people thought about uh, LGBT people. Um, it made me question for a moment whether maybe I should do culture instead of law. Uh, but then I sort of took the conservative choice and decided, well, let me try law and maybe I'll be one of those people who does it for a few years and then becomes a writer. But I still like it. And it turns out that it's been a pretty great way to make the world a better place. Well, I love that you reference Ellen DeGeneres coming out. Uh, we're, we're roughly the same vintage. And that was such a profound event for me. In fact, at the time, I was a senior in college that year and I held a watching party for that episode. And I had to borrow TVs from the other people in our building. So I'd have enough TVs so that all of the students who came, all of the queer students who came to finally see somebody who looked like them announce on television that they were gay could get into my apartment. Yeah, it was it's a big deal. It was a super big deal for me. That was when I was coming out, actually. And um, the way I came out to myself was that I was obsessed with this story of this actress on TV coming out on her TV show. And it just dawned on me one moment that the reason I was so obsessed with this story is because I was also gay. And, you know, that realization obviously had a pretty profound impact on my life. Um, but I still I still decided to go into law and not become a TV writer. <laughs> the LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. You have focused up big part of your career from the beginning on, on pro bono. Tell us a little bit about 
how you made the decision to do that and how it has pushed your own career? So when I was in law school, I, um, I was not a conventional law student. I had pink hair. I had a tongue ring. And I did not think I was going to end up at a law firm. I thought I was going to go to the ACLU or be a public defender, uh, do, do basically only pro bono work. But I had a law professor who uh, told me that I should go to my law firm, Jenner and Block, because they do the most pro bono work of anyone. And if I wasn't happy there, I wasn't going to be happy at any law firm. So I said, OK, I'll, I'll give it a try, partly because honestly, they pay money and then I could pay my loans back. Did you start your career with substantial loans? Oh, yeah. I still have loans. I have not paid off my law school loans yet. I have like 30000 left. Um, so the, the law school is expensive. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. That's a little bit of an awkward laugh. But it's a realization of the fact that 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 is part of this career path, right? Like you're you're not a beginner. I mean, you're you're somewhere in the middle of this career and you're still paying back your loans. Absolutely. It, it for sure is why I went to a law firm at the beginning. It's not why I'm still at the law firm, but it's why I went there at the start. And um, and I'm still there, I think, because it's a place where I can do pro bono work. I can do a lot of pro bono work and I can do it on any issue that I'm passionate about. Like we, in the last year, did 85,000 hours of pro bono work as a law firm. And we, we are the number one pro bono firm in the country. We've been the number one firm, I think, four years in a row, 10 of the last 13 years. And it's a place where people who never thought they wanted to go to a law firm because they wanted to do mostly public interest work end up staying because they can do both. There is this trope in law. A lot of people come out of school and they start at a firm. And a couple of years in, some cohort drop out. Um, and then a few more years in, more folks sort of decide to take another path. What happened for you during those early years that shifted your desire and made you want to double down on firm life? For me, I managed to find a place where I could be fully myself as a lawyer. And I think that can be unusual for people in a law firm. I think uh, for me, it meant finding somewhere where I could be irreverent and where people didn't take themselves too seriously and where there was not a lot of hierarchy. hierarchy so um, a brand new associate could question arguments or decisions by the most senior person and it would be valued and where I could be openly gay and valued for speaking up and for being a leader as a woman and not criticized for that. So that that was a big part of it. And then another big part of it was just the people. Uh, I, I managed to find a place with people who inspire me and who make me want to be a better person and make me uh, into a better lawyer. And Every time I thought about leaving, I, I couldn't think of a place where all those things would be true. So I'm still here. <laughs> well, so you must you must take meetings with younger people who are looking for advice in the field. I'm curious what questions come up most often. I think a big question is how do you stay true to your values and work at a law firm? Because I think there are a lot of a lot of young lawyers care about who they represent and they don't want to represent certain industries or certain clients. And so they're nervous about how to navigate that and how to um, really be an agent in their own life and in their own career. So I, I talk to them about how they can do that and really about how important it is to make conscious choices throughout. And so that's a that's a big part of it. Let's talk about that a second more, Lindsay. Sure. It is the duty of the lawyer to honor the letter and the spirit of the law on behalf of their client. How do you make peace with that? And how do you make those 
decisions consciously? I am passionate about travel, exploring new places. Um, I'm passionate about exceeding people's expectations and blowing their minds. So you will not be surprised that I found myself doing work for hotel companies like Marriott and Hyatt, whose business is all really geared at that. Uh, I'm also passionate about immigration and about diversity and how both generate smarter, better outcomes in our society, in our country. And so I have clients like uh, Princeton University and Microsoft who hired me to do litigation in defense of immigration and, and in defense of diversity. So you, I've managed to find clients who share my values. And then in that common ground, we pursue shared goals. Did you have to wait till you hit a certain level of seniority to be able to do that, Lindsay? Or is this something that you began cultivating earlier? So I started cultivating it as an associate, not maybe my first couple of assignments at a law firm. That's really hard to do. But really, within a year or two, I was seeking out the kind of work that I was passionate about. And to be honest, actively avoiding the work that I was not so interested in. Um, and I think that's probably a big part of why I'm happy and why I I'm, I'm continue to be happy at a law firm. Another thing that I think about when I think about the profession is that lawyers, they don't tend to have a lot of time for other things. I know for you, your family is very important to you. I'm lucky enough to know them. They're really wonderful. How do you make it all work? Well, <laughs> I don't really have any hobbies, so that's one way. My hobbies are doing Legos with my son and taking fake ballet classes on YouTube with my daughter. And uh, those are basically my main hobbies. Um, I also don't really have time for exercise, so I probably should try to find time for that. But it's really been just making choices. And um, we do a lot of activities as a family that, uh, you know, that allow me to see friends who have kids the same age, but, but that, um, you know, that those are choices that you make because you kind of have to. I mean, it sounds to me like your job is as much of a calling for you as a job. So it seems like a very reasonable choice to make to spend a lot of your waking hours doing it. Yeah, I kind of think of my pro bono work as my hobby, really. I'm super passionate about it. I get to help criminal defendants whose rights were violated. I get to help immigrants who didn't get a fair shake in trying to seek asylum. Those are things that make me happy. And, and you know, when I put my head on my pillow at the end of the day, if I got to give my kids a bath and have dinner with them and kiss them goodnight and got to help someone try to have a better life during the day, there's not a whole lot more I would ask for. So where are you on the path? Like, what do you aspire to in the future? Good question. Um, right now I aspire to like go on a vacation somewhere far away and tropical or, uh, you know, COVID has really put into perspective how much I miss travel. Career-wise, I want to keep doing what I'm doing and I really want to have like a dozen protégés who all have really happy, fulfilling careers of their own and who I've helped along the way have a better career, a more fulfilling career, find clients who are good matches for them. And that, that to me is the legacy I would love to leave is just to have trained and mentored a whole group of younger lawyers, particularly women, particularly lawyers of color who end up with great and amazing careers of their own. Uh, that's a pretty powerful legacy to even begin to think about. In the decade and change that you have been doing this work longer, almost two decades, um, how, how significant 
has the the shift in who the justices are been for the work that you have been doing? It's been massively significant. I'll tell you the the swing um, just in my brain from Merrick Garland is going to replace Justice Scalia on the court to Merrick Garland is not even getting a hearing. And in fact, uh, Justice Scalia is going to be replaced by Justice Gorsuch. And then we're going to add Justice Kavanaugh uh, to replace Justice Kennedy was wild and has taken a lot of uh, a lot of time and just existential energy to adjust to. But it's actually been a good challenge. And my firm won a really big, important Indian law case this past term. And Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion. And it just kind of has helped me with as a reminder that you can convince anyone of anything if your arguments are sound and if you have the right team and if you cultivate the right allies, you really can win any case. We exist right now in this incredibly divided moment in our country and everything feels so partisan and political. And our court system is supposed to be the the bed of reason, the places where arguments are made well and the law is upheld and at every turn more deeply understood. Do you find that that's the case right now? I do still. I think it can be challenging sometimes. Um, this administration has really worked hard to try to use the courts as a shield and, and as a sword uh, for its political agenda. And I think that makes it harder to make the case for law as a neutral uh, kind of arbiter of, of facts. But I think there is still a whole lot of judges in our judicial system who you can persuade of your case, even if you're of a different political affiliation. And even if going in, you might think uh, you, you're not going to get as fair a hearing as you'd like. I think there's still so many examples of that being true. To bring us full circle to the younger you, and to the younger people out there listening to this podcast, what are the characteristics of a good lawyer? If you're considering it and you're wondering if you'll be any good at it or if you'll enjoy it. So to be a good lawyer, first, you have to be open-minded. You have to be able to see both sides of the argument. And in fact, you really have to be able to make the other side's argument even better than they are so that you're answering the very best version of the other side. That's to me, the most important skill. Next is you have to be a really good writer. You don't always necessarily have to be a good oral advocate. There's a lot you can do in law just on paper, but you got to be a pretty good writer. And I think you have to have a really open perspective to the world. So a lot of people who end up going to law school were political science majors, and that's all they did, and that's all they wanted to be. You're much better as a lawyer if you studied sociology or playwriting or... Um, you know, biology, just any any field that's different from law, because law is just a kind of a set of tools to decide cases about all different things in the world. And so the more you know about those other things in the world, the better you're going to be as a lawyer. Yeah, well put. Um, Lindsay, I bet you're a really good Settlers of Catan player. I am an excellent Settlers of Catan player. <laughs> <laughs> I want you on my team if we ever are thrust into a match. That was Lindsay Harrison. You can check out more about her work at Jenner and Block by visiting their website. 
This week on Hello Monday Office Hours, we're going to talk about school, all types of school. Maybe you're going back to college or graduate school. Maybe you have kids who are navigating elementary school. The point is, this fall, it's going to be different, no matter where you are, no matter who you are. So come tell us about how you're preparing for it, how you're readjusting. My producer, Sarah Storm, and I will get together, as we do every Wednesday at 3 p.m., and go live from my LinkedIn profile. It's our coffee break, and hopefully yours too. And now, if you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Victoria Taylor and Juliette Ferreau are friends of our court, always. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday, and thanks for listening. The obvious last question. Are you a wolf or are you a villager? I'm a villager. I'm just going to say, I don't think I've ever won a game against you. So our <laughs> listeners can take that for what it is. <laughs> always a villager, always.